politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only CR Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house, the only show actually fighting for your life, liberty, and property in that order, because the right to life is all-encompassing. That is why we are here. We are here for outcomes, no soap operas, no nonsense. And folks, I want to talk a little bit more about life today. You know, the reckless disregard for human life began really with the abortionist movement, the eugenics movement, um, but they've moved on from abortion. Like I told you the last couple of weeks, even if they were to completely reverse Roe v. Wade, which I don't think they're going to do, but let's say they did that, it would be a bittersweet victory because the forces in charge of Western civilization have moved on to bigger and greater things, and they are being successful. So you might have all these Republicans say, oh, I'm against abortion, but they are for pharma fascism. They are for COVID killing. The biggest right to life is to be able to live unmolested by government, where you have control over your body, you have the right to do what you want, you have the right to get food, medicine for yourself, not to get subsidized and paid for, but to access it on your own. Here they bar you from accessing proper medicine, and I think they're they're headed towards that with food. If you listen to what the European Union, Union recently did say with their goal with the Ukrainian conflict and dragging that out for no reason, Biden wants to spend another $33 billion on that. But I digress. The point is that we cannot seek proper treatment. We are killed in hospitals. We're going to have a heartbreaking story later today with a father who lost a Down syndrome uh, girl due to what could only be described as an abortion of a 19-year-old. They just decided they were going to kill her in a hospital. This is happening everywhere. And again, we've, we've become used to this. But how did we come to a point where we had a clot shot that failed animal trials and was put into 2 billion people? And even now, after a year and a half of information... It's still being promoted. It's still being advanced. Remdesivir is being expanded. Paxlovid, we found out, it's causing the virus to go on, of course, like everything else they do. Everything they do, they get away with. And there is really no unified opposition against it. Show me the candidates that are really running against this to rectify this with a health care plan on what medical freedom means. To break this government pharma monopoly. Nobody. I'm not hearing that anywhere. So I want to discuss some of the latest news on that front. With the clot shots. Pharma fascism. And yes, we'll get into the hospital killing fields as well. Uh, You know, one... Speaking of breaking up monopolies. Obviously, one monopoly they have is telecoms. Look, folks. Um... It's not only the fact that when you give to T-Mobile or Verizon, you are donating to those that are going to kill you, literally. Pharma and telecom are in bed together. They're actually monitoring your text messages, and they're talking about censoring it. That will happen soon. 
Almost every day we hear about more censorship from these organizations. That's why I'm proud to support Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative cell phone provider. Um, the good news is you don't have to settle. They provide the same nationwide coverage as the other major carriers without the baloney and threat of censorship. Uh, they have plans that fit your budget. They have an excellent, superb U.S.-based American customer support team that you could call. So go to patriotmobile.com slash CR as in conservative review or call 972-PATRIOT. Get free activation with offer code CR. Veterans and first responders save even more because they actually appreciate and love American values. They share our values. So you should support them as well. PatriotMobile.com slash CR. Again, PatriotMobile.com slash CR or call 972-PATRIOT. So I wanted to start today with a GAO report, Government Accountability Office. Can't talk today. Just released a report where they conducted an interview or an investigation based on interviews with employees of four HHS agencies most responsible for the virus response. These were obviously NIH, FDA, CDC, as well as ASPR, that's Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. And they found that the agencies do not have procedures that define political interference and scientific decision-making or describe how it should be reported and addressed. And indeed, in some private interviews that they did with some of the employees, as well as through an anonymous tip line they had, a hotline they set up, a few respondents from CDC and FDA stated that they felt that potential political interference they observed resulted in the alteration or suppression of scientific findings. Some of these respondents believe that this potential political interference may have resulted in the politically motivated alteration of public health guidance or delayed publication of COVID-19 related scientific findings. Gee, you think. Now, this is nothing new to, to you and me, but here you, you have a government watchdog agency that wrote a letter to Congress, uh, the leaders of the House and Senate Judiciary Committees, as well as the HELP Committees, that's Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. And they demonstrated that, yeah, basically in the agencies that are most prone to political interference, that are tasked with science, uh, they have no ability to even um, investigate it. And indeed, they found out that people were scared of reprisal. So they didn't say anything. Now, all of government is full of pay-for-play, corruption, you know, uh, political science trumping the public good. I mean, that's that's obvious. There's nothing new. It's the same thing with DOD, with what they're doing, promoting billions of dollars in Ukrainian weapons to promote the neo-Nazis, um, continue the misery there on both sides, not going to do anything. And, of course, continue the misery for the world of the strained supply chains and inflation on food. But what is different here is that our government has crowned science the king. So science is able to trump constitutional rights. It's able to trump your body, your health. We could literally, based on their decisions, determine life and death more, more directly than any other aspect of government. Oh, and it's also controlled 
by cronyism more than any other aspect of government. Pharma literally is one with the FDA and CDC. 1992, Congress passed the Prescription Drug User Fee Act that allowed them to collect user fees from the drug companies. It used to be they couldn't. Now 75% of the entire division for drug review budget comes from the people they're supposedly regulating. Now, again, you know, I don't typically like overburdensome regulations, but the problem here is that they control health care. It's built upon 60 years of Medicare and Medicaid insurance cartel that was all created not by the free market. So we have no choice. The consumer is cut out. And then they not only approve the, the therapeutics, but they block therapeutics they don't like. And then they not just approve them, but they fund them, market them, and then mandate them and use all their channels through hospitals and doctors that, again, they control the insurance companies, and they basically tip the balance. So it's not just, oh, you know, okay, you know, let the free market survive. We'll give it approval, but, you know, let the people see if they really like the product. No. So that is a bill that needs to be repealed among our many, our long list of action items that we're going to push at a federal and state level um, next year in states we don't have to wait as we keep saying Republicans control half of them but they don't care so it used to be look we all know that there's cronyism and there always was but there used to be a limit to how far they would go it's like they're not going to approve hemlock because you know Pfizer gave them some money except now they will because again it's not just about the money it's the spirit of the age it's, it's spiritual. It's transhumanism. And drugs and pharma and healthcare is not the only way they're going to get us, by the way. This is a broad death squad, death panel. We talked about this a couple months ago, but thanks to attorney Aaron Siri, he had a FOIA do- document, an email from a, a Facebook dude showing them collaborating together with Big Bank, Big... Um, academia, big tech, the CDC Foundation, and Merck, all for a massive initiative because Merck and Facebook alone dumped in $40 million to this Alliance for Advancing Health Online, understanding of how social media and behavioral sciences can be leveraged to improve the health of communities around the world. So all of the censorship... All of the fake studies, all of the fakeness on outdoor transmission, asymptomatic transmission, masking, uh, Paxlovid, Molnupiravir, Remdesivir, the clot shots, okay, children being at risk, every last thing, shutdown of schools, every last thing that was a civilization killer alone, and then certainly magnified uh, uh, together with the amalgamation of all those factors, this was all done. And again, the 1992 Act created the CDC Foundation. So it's a nonprofit, but it's not a nonprofit. It's an arm of the CDC, and that's funded by Pfizer and Merck and Facebook, and it's all one big toilet, and it all comes together. So is there any wonder why the cheapest, safest, most efficient, already established, safe, approved FDA drugs, not a single one has been approved, and most of them have been attacked, 
while remdesivir, which was so toxic, it had to be taken out of an Ebola trial, much less treatment in the general public, is not only not been taken off the market, but has now been expanded to babies as small as seven pounds. Remdesivir. Again, this is a death squad that knows no limits. And now, DHS, Biden administration announced they're setting up a disinformation governing board to enforce all of this, to monitor everything we say. And by the way, you know, over the summer and into the fall, into September, really the late summer, as they craft the fiscal year 2023 budget bill, if Republicans don't have a shutdown fight over prohibiting funding for that agency they want to set up, they are worthless, and they already are worthless. They'll say, oh, well, let's just win the election. I'm telling you, nothing is changing. Kevin McCarthy yesterday got a standing ovation from his caucus after he trashed them over January 6th. Nothing has changed. He'll be speaker. No other person in my industry wants to do what I'm doing and actually reinvent the wheel, actually work all the angles of local activism, primaries, you know, my all my different ideas of how to have a transitional um, approach gradually winning off the Republican Party, starting a new one, but using it when, you know, for ballot access when you need it. There's a lot of ways to do that if you actually cared instead of just throwing up your hands. There's nothing we can do to vote Republican. Look at the Republican primaries and you tell me if things have changed. Now, one organization that is trying to change this that I support is Patriot Academy. Folks, there's almost, there's really only another few days left. Um, a little bit more than three weeks until our trip out to uh, the Whittington NRA Center in Colfax County, New Mexico, May 22nd. Five-day handgun defensive training course. Imagine meeting me, meeting other patriots in this audience. Best company, best patriots together. Beautiful weather, beautiful scenery. Shooting together during the day, studying the Constitution at night. Doesn't get better than that. Make it your vacation. Um Sign up at patriotacademy.com slash Daniel to learn the details. And again, I know it's it's very expensive nowadays, uh, plane tickets and everything, but their training is is really much cheaper than anything equivalent. It's $100 a day, $500 for the entire course. Um, yeah, I mean, plane tickets, rental cars are expensive, but especially those of you who are within eight hours or so, you live in Texas or Colorado, Arizona, no excuses for you guys, especially if you're retired, you got an RV, take it out there. You could sleep in your RV. Um, you just got to pay for gas, and you could bring your own ammo, which is tougher to bring on your on, on, on a plane because they, they do have a limit. Um, but again, that's patriotacademy.com slash Daniel. Spots are really limited at this point, so make sure you register today. Looking forward to seeing you all there. So, folks, this is going on everywhere. Facts don't matter. Deaths in Iceland jumped 30% in the first quarter of this year. So again, again, Iceland barely had any COVID deaths. Suddenly, like all those countries, they jumped with the, the, the mildest variant after everyone was boosted. And like everything, right around the time of the third dose is when their deaths took off. And yes, they did have more COVID deaths around January or so 
than relative to what they had before, but it only accounts for it only accounts for about a third of that excess. What are the other two thirds from? And also, even that one third, again, why should they have their worst COVID death curve precisely after everyone has three shots, precisely with the least pathogenic um, variant that is the least thrombotic and attacks the lungs less than certainly Delta? That doesn't make any sense. But we saw this with New Zealand. We saw this with South Korea, Hong Kong, you know, the Pacific Rim countries. Of course, juxtaposed to Nigeria, the largest country in Africa. No boosters, only 6% vax rate. It is going up there, by the way. They keep vaxing more there. It was like nothing before. So they're determined to give them problems. But thankfully, they probably already have immunity. And um, they, have, they have no deaths there in a country of over 200 million people. This is from the Epic Times. We've had him on, Dr. James Thorpe, a 42-year 40 OBG specialist. What I've seen in the last two years is unprecedented. I've seen many, many complications in pregnant women and moms and fetuses and children, offspring, fetal death, miscarriages, death of a fetus inside the mom. What I've seen in the last two years is unprecedented. Again, this is the abortion issue of our time. And name me the Republicans speaking to this, that are pushing for reparations, that are pushing to take the shots off the market, that are pushing the systemic reforms of the entire FDA farmer relationship, an exemption from liability, and fostering more medical freedom up and down the system at a state level. This is the biggest liberty life issue imaginable. You can't move off of this. Moderna announced that they are now seeking authorization at the end of the week for babies and toddlers to get a shot. Mind you, a shot of a virus that hasn't existed in the form that, that the shot was created for, supposedly, for over a year, or about a year. You know, the amazing thing is even before you get into the serious injuries of Moderna, and Moderna is an insane dose, they're pushing 25 micrograms on babies. 25, Pfizer's entire shot for adults is 30. 25 micrograms. But what's interesting is if you go back to Moderna's trial, this is not for the babies. This is for like the um, uh, 12 to 15-year-olds, I believe. They found 73% had fatigue, 62% had headache, 35% muscle ache, 35% chills, 29% vomiting. 25.7% fever. And arthralgia, I guess that's like uh, joint pain, joint aches, and the joints, 21.3%. 61.3% 
school-age children. Folks, that's the upper bounds of what they would get from any form of COVID. And you're giving it to them up front, and then it doesn't prevent it either. You get it anyway, and it has negative efficacy, and then as we talked about yesterday, it actually prevents you from ever achieving immunity. It does everything they do is a death shot. It's unbelievable. And again, this is a, those of you who have been with me from day one, this is a continuity of observations that jive with each other day after day after day. Then they all hone in on the same point. How we allow this is astounding. Now, I do want to get to our special guest to talk about this death trap concentration camp healthcare system. But I want to preface our guest with an unbelievable story. So we're living in a country where now government could do anything to their body. They could deny you basic care. They could block life-saving medications. They could put you on ventilators preemptively. They could force death shots that destroy your immune system at a minimum and then cause lethal maladies and death um, at a maximum into your body in order to get a kidney transplant. They could deny transplants. They could deny work, government jobs, government employees, military service, you name it. You have no freedom. Yet, at the same time, a federal judge in Illinois, Christina Nicholas Iglesias, I don't know where she crawled out of, ruled that this dude who calls himself a woman who's been in federal prison for 28 years, so I didn't, I didn't see what the guy did. It had to have been pretty bad. She ruled in a landmark ruling. It wasn't just for the guy. It would apply to the entire Federal Bureau of Prisons that anyone is entitled to a qualified surgeon to perform castration. Think about this. So you can't force a hospital to do a kidney transplant, but you could force them to cut your balls off and pay for it too. Um, this was... Where is this? Oh, I'm sorry. I got it wrong. Christina Nicole Iglesias was what this dude calls himself, um, thinking he's a woman. Nancy Rosen Rosenstangel, chief judge of the U.S. District for the Southern District of Illinois, appointed by Barack Hussein. She ruled that basically it's a constitutional right. It looks like you have a constitutional right to castration. What I'm trying to show you is it's not just, it's not a double standard. As um, Christina Peshaw, DeSantis's press secretary, said, it's a hierarchy. It's fascism. This is all part of it. They could turn on and off that switch at ease. So you might think, well, man, they're, they're really at this trend that like, Look, government could make health healthcare decisions for you, whatever you want. Nope. When they want you to have the decision, they could say that the person has the decision even to force the government to provide them with mutilation. You can't recover from a society, a judiciary, a government. 
that subscribes to this at a time when they're forcing death shots on you. They could force mutilation on you, you could demand mutilation of them, but you can't demand life-saving treatment. Sodom and Gomorrah has nothing on our country. So with this story, this federal court ruling fresh in your mind, again, if your blood is not boiling, it's clotting. And if it's not clotting, it's boiling. This is where we are. I want you to now transition that to what is going on in American hospitals. You have a right to castration, but you don't have the right to basic human care. Now, we've done a lot of these stories before. We're all familiar with the fact that, obviously, hospitals will never try any safe drugs, any of the ones that are just traditional uh, for standard of care for pulmonary uh, distress, such as uh, nebulizers, budesonide. Um, they refuse to even look at the research of high-dose methylpred rather than low-dose dexamethasone. We're familiar with all that. We're familiar with remdesivir. We're familiar with the ventilators. But whenever I thought I've heard everything, something comes along and just jolts me even more, and, and it's unbelievable. So with us today is Scott Sher of Green Bay, Wisconsin. He had a very tragic story in a, in a local hospital there. He had a 19-year-old daughter, Grace, who died last October at a local hospital of COVID, but not really. She had COVID. Surprisingly for someone that young, did seem to have her blood oxygen level dropping, but nothing that we haven't seen before, that we haven't dealt with for decades in hospitals. People wouldn't come out dead, certainly not at 19 years old. And within less than a week, she is gone. But what killed her is what's very shocking and surprising here. And it opens up an entirely new dynamic that we might have touched on before, but not so much. And it reverberates well beyond COVID. So with us today is Scott. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. And I'm, I'm sorry for your loss that I'm sure is still painful six months later. Uh, it is. Thanks for having me. And it is still painful. Uh, Grace was my best buddy. And it, it, it's extremely painful. But, you know, it's easy to tell the story because she was my best buddy. So I uh, I owe her getting the story out. Sure, sure. And and I'll just ask you to speak up into the microphone if you can. Um, www.ouramazinggrace.net. Um, so I want you guys to go there. Uh, there's a place to donate for legal help. Um, but, you know, he has all of the research there because it's very important that he did painstaking research. This is not just an allegation of someone who's disgruntled, certainly losing someone who's 19 years old. Um, you're always going to blame the hospital. No, this is something that is very unique. Um, Grace uh, had Down syndrome and she came in with covid uh, so, so Scott, she came in October 6th. Is that correct? That's correct. And yes, how long right. after she had the virus did she go to the hospital? We estimated she, she um, contracted the virus on September 28th. And we estimate that just because that's, she had a sniffle that day. And we assumed that any sniffle would be the Delta variant because it was running rampant at that time. So we got her on the frontline doctor's protocol that day. We tested her on October 1st with a home test and she tested positive. So that's the the confirming date. 
Sure, sure. So I'm not going to get into so much why that didn't work. You know, that's that's a separate story. And we, we did a lot at the time with Delta, which was uh, we believe was vaccine mediated enhancement. And that was a very tough thing to treat. But nonetheless, you, you tried to do what you can, what you knew knew would work. But still, her blood oxygen level dropped to 88. Um, so about about a week later or so, maybe a little bit more, uh, you went into a hospital. Could you say which hospital it was? It was St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Appleton, Wisconsin, which is part of the Ascension uh, mega system that has 142 hospitals. Wow. Okay, so mega system, and, and that that's very important, folks, because that's what we have nowadays, mega systems, and the free market did not create that. Our entire convoluted system created that, um, and it's not just a matter of cost. It reverberates in terms of care. So she comes in, um, again, historically, someone has blood oxygen level of 88. They're very young. There's nothing else wrong. It's a kind of a pneumonia-like thing. This is a tough virus, but it's a question of, okay, do you get admitted? If so, how long? There's never a question you're going to come out of it. Um, talk about the progression of the viral symptoms in the, in the uh, ensuing days and then what the hospital did and did not do. Yeah, you know, that's a that's a great question just to start with. So I do want to say that, the you know, you don't expect that a hospital is going to kill somebody. So that paradigm is is one of the main reasons we're sharing the story, because, you know, if you think through what I'm going to tell you with re their care and you'll see the care was substandard. And so if we came in the hospital thinking they were going to kill Grace, we would have pulled her out when we saw the substandard care. But our paradigm was a hospital isn't there to kill somebody, they're there to help somebody. So we let the substandard care go because you just don't think they're trying to take somebody exactly. out. Yeah, there's so no way they're missing something that you would know. You know, they're the doctors. Um, and, and we view a hospital as a place of relief and, you know, nice uh, thoughts are conjured up with that. And that's that was kind of pre-COVID. So you come in there. Um, what 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 are they doing and not doing that first day or two? So the first day was it's interesting because my thought process was this is going to be three to four days goofing off in the hospital, you know, and so I just looked at it as a mini vacation. So the first day was normal up until they put this high flow cannula on Grace, which, I mean, again, I'm not the wiser. I thought, well, it must, she must need it for oxygen. Well, she, so toward the end of the day, they put this on, she gets pretty irritated with it. This is, this is shooting air up your nose at 40 miles an hour. So then, because of that irritation, they switch you to a BiPAP mask. And I say this now with confidence because we did the research as to what really helps get people well with COVID. And on top of that, as you and I talked off um, off script, was the idea that I, I was in the hospital with worse symptoms than Grace three days later, and they saved my life. So you think through, okay, why did she need this high flow cannula? Well, she really didn't, but that was the first anomaly to her care. So she didn't like that. Then we get fitted for a BiPAP, which she really didn't need either, as I said. But the the reality is that that frustration Grace experienced that first night, that was the first really bad thing. But they they did a great job with that. 
the respiratory therapist came in. I explained Grace is on a CPAP, so I showed her that mask, and then they fitted her with the right mask, and everything was fine. Then the next morning, a doctor came in. So this was the second full day, October 8th. He, he came in and said, you need to put your daughter on a ventilator in the next two hours. And I said, well, what is that based on? And he said, well, we did a blood gas draw last evening. I said, what time? And he said, 1130. So remember what I just got done telling you with the high flow cannula and the BiPAP, that process of doing that, Grace got pretty frustrated and her uh, blood pressure was 235 over 135 and her heart rate was 150 beats per minute. So I shared that with the doctor. I said, I don't think that blood gas draw was accurate based on these facts. I'd like you to retake the numbers. And so they did a new blood gas and Grace was fine. So, mm-hmm. you know, what, what happened, another paradigm that I had at that time, you know, so my, my overall perspective was to challenge things because I'm not, I'm not going to just blindly trust, but I had the ventilator paradigm at that moment, which was, I believe, unknowingly instituted by President Trump when COVID first came out. You know, he said there's a ventilator shortage and we need yep. to convert factories to make ventilators. So I just thought, well, okay, well, you know, I, I'm not going to put her on a ventilator, but I didn't have anything negative on it. So then I, I asked him, what's the prognosis? And he said only 20% of people walk out alive once they're on a ventilator. Of course, I found out. I want to I want to back out back up for a minute because so far this is a very common story that you know within a day they're ready onto the ventilator, which again never makes any sense. That never happened before. Um, You might think eventually someone will wind up on that, but you don't prejudge then. Like you said, they used a backhanded way. They said the blood pressure was the issue, but then it turned out she was more agitated. So that wasn't so much, that wasn't true. But what I want to say is, what was the prognosis? Meaning typically you don't have a 19-year-old that you go from within a day like, all right, so it's it's a pneumonia, you know, okay, people get that too. Yeah, you're going to go on a ventilator and it's 20% chance of survival. What was the diagnosis? What was the, like, was there ever a moment of, okay, here's what she's up against. Here's what's going on. The lungs are clotting or whatever. Here's what we plan to do about it. Well, yeah, the diagnosis was COVID pneumonia. But what, you know, you have, again, the perception they create. And, you know, if I say pneumonia to people, what do the, what, picture do they have in their mind? They have a picture that your lungs have fluid in. Well, that's not what COVID pneumonia is. And, you know, so they, they create this picture, but they don't, the communication is so poor that you can't get your arms around it. So then you have this fear, well, she's got pneumonia. But I mean, it's, it's just a symptom that's treatable with COVID with steroids. I mean, it is, it, it is really not a big deal, but they make it into a big deal. And then, you know, so you're, you don't really know what to do because you yeah. don't have the information and they don't share it with you. Yeah, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, there, there, there's a little truth to everything. On the one hand, the virus is more vicious potentially than a typical pneumonia because, heck, it was created as such. Um, you know, on the other hand, they, you know, we have like you are treated with budesonide, but most hospitals will not give you nebulizers. They didn't give it to her. You were treated with other things. You actually had good care, very very important. Uh, could, could you just name, I want to, you know, we're talking about a lot of negative, but for the positive, what was the hospital you were treated at? It was St. Vincent's Hospital in Green Bay, which is 
part of a small regional hospital system. And I believe that's 100% the reason why my care was different. Yes, and I've noticed that with cancer care and some other things, you actually go into the big systems, you're worse off, contrary to public perception. So, okay, I mean, again, this is very common, so they ignore everything else. Um, Again, it's very hard to understand how a 19-year-old could deteriorate this badly, this rapidly. It's extremely rare. The data show that um, your daughter did have Down syndrome, but but you know, there's no literature that I've seen that um, that would have any bearings on COVID. Um, so you know, it's v- very treatable, but they didn't. They say you need a ventilator. Okay, now let's get into. We know what they didn't do. They didn't do any proper treatment. The low dose decks, nothing else. They actually didn't do remdesivir, so that wasn't the issue here for the better, for the worse. Um, then what did they do? You didn't want to do a ventilator. Okay. So did they force yep, ventilator? ventilator? Nope. That never got forced, but it was asked of us four more times after that as a pre-authorization. So they, they wanted us to pre-authorize a ventilator and just in case, which I'm putting in air quotes and their just in case was framed. They would tell us these type of things tend to happen in the middle of the night when we can't get a hold of the family, so Stop we want it. you to pre-approve it. No. Yeah, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. You're telling me as a quote, they said they tend to happen in the middle of the night? Yes. I mean, you can't make this stuff Because up. we actually had nurses on this show saying that exact point, that that's what they always do. So I can't believe they told you that. Um, so it tends to happen. You want you want uh, you know pre-authorization. Um, could you... Do you remember while she was on BiPAP during these, you know, October 7th, 8th, 9th, those two, three days afterwards, what her blood oxygen level was with the BiPAP on? Yeah, that's a fantastic question because it opens up quite a can of worms. Um, I'm going to go through a story because the story answers your question way better than Mm -hmm. me just answering it. So on October 9th, this was a Saturday. Grace was pretty hungry. She rested most of the eighth. And uh, so I ordered food. We could order off of a menu. It was pretty neat set up there. So I got the food. I started feeding her. And it isn't that Grace couldn't feed herself. She was high functioning, but she had a BiPAP mask on. So then I, I start feeding her. A nurse comes running in and said, you can't do that. I said, well, what's the reason? And she said, well, her oxygen saturation is only at 85%. So I thought about that for about 15, 20 minutes, and I thought, that cannot be. That's impossible. When we were in the emergency room, she was just on a regular cannula, and she was in the high 90s. I had all of my COVID materials in the room because I was suspected I would get COVID. So I had my own oxygen meter, you know, the finger meter. So I put it on Grace, and it read 95%. So I called the nurse back in. I said, is my oxygen meter accurate? And she said, yes, it is. And I said, well, why is my $50 meter reading more accurately than your $50,000 meter? And she said, because the leads get sweaty. And I said, if you know that, why don't you proactively change out these leads or whatever you need to do every three, four hours or whatever it takes so you have an accurate reading? Because this is the primary statistic you're using to manage my daughter's care. And she snottily responded, you should just be thankful you caught this. I got the bill from Medicaid. I requested the bill that the hospital sent to Medicaid after Grace died. Found out that during the, the seven days Grace was in there, they only changed out those leads three times in spite of my challenge. And the cost that they billed was only wow. $78 a lead. 
So she and was setting fine on BiPAP, but they were using fake numbers to try to get her on a ventilator. And then also, it's a vicious cycle. The more you don't treat, the the more you don't, you know, deal with the pulmonary inflammation, and then the more you risk it going down. But also, the more you don't eat, the more you don't Absolutely. get better. And then they say you can't eat because they don't even want to take it off for a minute. To yeah, oh my gosh, this this is again. I've heard all of this before. This is crazy. So this kind of the ventilator thing, but we're running out of time a little bit. I want to get to the heart of what makes your yep. case possibly unique, but maybe not that our audience hasn't heard yet. Yeah. So I'm going to burn through the last day and just, uh, this, this is, you really got to uh, listen hard and, and, uh, just strap yourself in because this is a big deal. So at eight o'clock in the morning on Grace's last day, which was October 13th, the doctor called Cindy and I at home. I had been kicked out by an armed guard on October 10th. So my daughter Jessica is now in the room. At eight o'clock, he called us asking for our decision on this fourth request for a pre-authorization for a ventilator. We said no. He said, well, Grace had such a good day yesterday, we should put a feeding tube in. We foolishly approved that. She needed a feeding tube because they weren't feeding her, as oh, you know, referenced man. in my. So we agreed to this. At 8:30, my daughter Jessica said to the, "There's a 14-year ICU nurse on Grace's uh, case that day." She says to the nurse, "I'm going to take a shower." She says, "You can't. You got to go home." When I was in the room with Grace, they insisted I not leave, so I showered right in the room. So Jessica runs home. She's back inside of an hour. When she got back, she overheard two doctors and a nurse in the hallway say, the family's not going to like this. So she says, what aren't they going to like? They strapped Grace down to the bed while Jessica was gone because Grace wanted to go to the bathroom. Oh. Afterward, an attorney that we're working with asked this question, which really got me into what is going on here. He said, Scott, would you have been strapped down? I said, no, I would have got up and had them help me with the, you know, the IVs, you know, they help you to the bathroom, right? That's what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Instead, they strap Grace down. Unbelievable. Did, did they, get, so did they have like I, a bucket or a catheter or something? There was a catheter, but I mean, she had to, she had to go poop. So they made her poop in the bed. Uh, so the, I mean, it's sickening. So I, I looked at the doctor's records then after this attorney said that and found out in the 22 doctor's reports that were written in the seven days Grace was there, they referenced that Grace had Down syndrome 36 different times. So the fact is, from my opinion, they strapped her down because they could, and it was pure laziness. They used that as an excuse to ratchet up a sedation med called Presidex. They illegally had Grace on Presidex for four full days before her last day. And I say illegally because the package insert for Presidex says it's not supposed to be used for more than 24 hours. Wow. So now they use that as an excuse to ratchet up to Presidex further. They don't wait for Grace's numbers to rebound. They go right to this feeding tube. Well, now Grace is agitated. They took that as their excuse to ratchet up Presidex to the max dose at 10.48 in the morning. Remember, at 8 o'clock, the doctor called and said, Grace had such a good day I yesterday with my day, daughter, yeah. Jessica. Yeah, it's, it's insane. So now they max dose Presidex. Grace is out of it now, the balance of the day. They didn't stop. At 11.25, they gave her a dose of lorazepam. At 5.46, they gave her another dose of lorazepam. Remember, she's out of it. 
they they had her so high on this. this now, can you um, describe the difference sedation. between those two drugs? Sure. Uh, Presidex is a sedation drug. It's used for anesthesia to put you out before surgery. Okay. And lorazepam is an anti-anxiety med to stop anxiety. Well, she has zero anxiety because she's out for surgery. You know, not not really, but I mean, that's the equivalent. So they gave At, two doses of that right within a few hours. Well, it's about third dose. They gave her another dose three minutes later at 549. And then to top it off at 615, they gave her a two milligram dose of morphine. That combination of meds in 29 minutes would have taken you, I, and anybody listen to this program out. We have a hundred medical professionals that have said this. We have an intensivist that has written to me and told me that the meds killed your daughter, but it gets substantially worse than this. So now Jessica's in the room. She senses Grace is getting cold, so she asked this 14-year ICU nurse to, to take a temperature, and if this is normal, she said, yeah, it's normal. She wouldn't come in the room. She just said, cover her with a blanket. Jessica starts really panicking. She called Cindy and I. My wife's name is Cindy. She called us on FaceTime then and said, Dad, Grace's numbers are dropping like crazy. I said, get the nurses in. She said, I've been trying. They will not come in the room. She estimated 30 nurses in the room at this point because of shift change, not in the room, outside the room because of shift change. So we start hollering via FaceTime to the nurses, save our daughter. They holler back. She's DNR. Do not resuscitate. This is the first we knew she's DNR. Ooh, wait, 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 wait. You're saying you discovered a DNR that you never approved? Absolutely. We found out after the fact. You can't, I mean, this is so egregious, Daniel. After the fact, we got all the, we got all the records that we thought, but Tom Renz got involved with us. I mean, he's just a, been a gift. Sure. He hired a medical malpractice nurse to review our records on our behalf. She reviewed the records that I thought we had, everything, and she said, you're missing at least a 1,000 pages. So she writes up a records request. We get the second request now. There's 948 pages missing. On page 857 of 948, we find out the doctor put a DNR order on Grace eight minutes after max dose Presidex. So we holler down back to the story. We holler to these nurses. She's not DNR. Save our daughter. This whole thing with the DNR violates eight separate Wisconsin state statutes. They would not come in the room. We watched Grace die at 727. And if it couldn't get any worse than that. So seven minutes later, we watched her die. So now I take my wife to the hospital to help Jessica clean Grace up. I had to stay in the truck because I, I had COVID. They do that. Our pastor meets us there. The the funeral director, the pastors, they're all done. The pastor's walking Cindy out in a wheelchair, and the nurse has Grace's belongings on a cart and leans down and says to my wife, me and several of the other nurses don't think Grace should have died today. That's what clued us in to start researching. <laughs> no kidding. Well, then Jessica, Jessica tells us the final nail. You know, you can't, this, you can't make this up either. She says, Dad. There was an armed guard posted outside the room. And, you know, so I say posted with confidence, too, because what Jessica did after Grace died is she crawled in bed with her and just laid with her until my wife got there. And she said that armed guard stood outside the nurse's window and watched her the whole time. What in the world? I mean, you put the confluence of, of events, conflation of events together, and it paints a picture 
They always wanted her on a ventilator. They kicked you out. They didn't do anything to help her. They blocked proper feeding. Then they never would go in. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You go downhill. And then and then they gave her anti-anxiety, anti, um, and then something that, and a sedation, and morphine. D describe just the, what, what you've seen medically from the FDA black box warning in terms of usage of those drugs together. We have this posted, the, the morphine package insert is posted on Grace's website. The black box warning says specifically to not combine those meds because they cause death. And it also, out, right outside the black box warning, but still on the first page of the package insert, it says you're supposed to have the reversal drug bedside and monitor the patient. Once they administered morphine, a nurse did not step foot in that room until after Grace died until after she died. And I want people to understand vividly, and I know this is painful, not just for you, but for a lot of people um, are shaking their heads now because I've been getting a lot of emails over the past year. The reason why this is interesting is because this is a 19-year-old. So 19-year-old, very healthy. The fact that she has Down syndrome has no bearings on the lungs, the heart, the organs. I mean, right? I mean, her organs were fine. Um, like any other 19-year-old. So it's not like where it's murky sometimes, like, oh, maybe he did die of COVID or whatever. In this case, she was doing fine, stable on BiPAP. You know, maybe she did have a bad case of COVID. It would have taken a while to wean off of that. But you weren't going to head towards death. Gives this stuff. And we all know the sedation and anti-anxiety and morphine, the opioids, all of those contribute to lowering your... Um, you're you're uh, slowing your breathing at a time when you know you need help with that. It's literally like pouring fire on fire when you need water. It's the worst thing you can do. It also destroys your immune system. So it's the exact opposite of what you would do. The sedation and morphine. It's a big thing, right? Because everyone knows you're not in pain, right? You don't need to be sedated. It's not it's not the type. And, and opioids, like you come in with a kidney stone or a broken, bent bone or something, acute pain. COVID's not acute pain, right? I mean, a lot of people have said what's what's very confounding about COVID is often your blood oxygen would go down, you're very sick, but you w often wouldn't even notice. It. It's not so much pain. That's not that's not what it is. Um, it's not a candidate for sedation and opioids. It's just bizarre. But they've been doing this everywhere. You'd have someone who. It's just like, dude, they're nowhere near dying, and then, then by the end of the day, they're dead. This really connects a lot of the dots. Sadly, what I think has happened with thousands of people. Is that correct? I think that's 100% correct. And, you know, at the beginning, I thought it had to do with, with money. When I say at the beginning, I mean at the beginning of my research. I have about 500 hours of research in this, and and so I thought it had to do with money. And the specifics in Grace's case is because we wouldn't approve a ventilator, they were only making $1,680 a day. And at that day that she died, these statistics were all available online. The hospital was at 100% capacity, and so was the emergency room. And so I, you know, I thought first it's about money. So they, they, you know, they have higher paying patients, Grace's you know, the lowest paying person, let's take her out. Um, and that that got expanded quite a bit when I read Dr. Elizabeth Valit's work uh, about attenuated care, ration care, and that has led to genocide. And, you know, so what is really going on? You know, I think that it's pretty clear that they want to take out the disabled and the elderly. 
and I have a whole bunch of evidence on the website to prove it. But one of the things that is the, maybe the most direct piece of evidence is I sent complaints against the doctor and the hospital to the regulatory departments at the state of Wisconsin. Both did investigations. And if you spent any time on the website, you'll see my research is over the top. I sent all my research to them. They did investigations and said both the hospital and the doctor did nothing wrong. Yeah, so of course. Process, what, what is that telling you? That's telling you the hospitals are owned by the government, not yep. legally, but literally. And so the government can't, they can't convict themselves. So they give them a free pass when this stuff happens. How can you not take this serious? Yeah, so so you believe the fact that she had Down syndrome played a role in, that she was marked from day one? I've become convinced of that. You know, it sounds conspiracy-like, but it, when you start putting facts together, you know, conspiracies become truth. And I have enough facts now that I believe that's the case. And one of the newest ones happened this last week. God gives me these these uh, times he said, you know, he doesn't tell me directly, but you know, it's just these insights, you know, do this research and people are starting to put together the numbers from COVID. And I found one of the articles I read, which is on the website now is that disabled women have an 11 times more likely death rate from COVID in a hospital than non-disabled. You know, and of course, you know, the the mainstream press will say, well, that's because they had some other condition that made them more likely to to die. But that's not the case. Grace didn't have any more condition that caused that. Uh, you know, I, I think that it's part of a whole, you know, if you, if you know how this fits with Agenda 21 and genocide, it simply becomes one of the many tools that they can use to reduce yep. the population. And I've become... Um, you know, I got educated on this. This is stuff you would have known decades ago, but, you know, I, you know, I just was a naive citizen. I didn't trust the government, but yeah, I, I learned all this through the research of my daughter's death and all of a sudden I'm, I'm covering this stuff and you can't, you can't believe it. It's like, oh my gosh, this is, she didn't have a chance. Th that's what it appears. It's not like, oh, you know, they just don't believe in us, proactive care. So it kind of gets that point. Um, now, we're almost out of time, but a couple couple things, outcomes here. So first, on a personal level, then a macro level. At a personal level, uh, do you feel you have a legal case in the sense that typically the PrEP Act exempts them from pandemic-related treatment, such as remdesivir? You don't really have a case with that, unfortunately, and that needs to be changed. But in this case, it appears that they violated FDA black box warnings in terms of contraindications. Do, do, are, are you pursuing a legal cause of action with that? We have not hired an attorney yet. I would say uh, in that regard, I believe that door is going to open up. And when I say that, I'm talking about God opening up the door. Um, There's so many things happening in the legal front right now that I believe the door, you know, we're right there. And I, because we, we've got an overabundance of evidence, not just in reviewing the records, but myself and my daughter, Jessica, were in the room and we took contemporaneous notes. So it, our evidence is over the top. So we, you know, so Grace's case might be used as a test case. There's no money in these cases. That's why it becomes a thing where nobody wants to take it on. 
but if it's used, if Grace's case is used as a test case um, to stop this, you know, that would be agreeable to us. We've already said we're not going to take any money. Um, you know, so we're, I don't care about the money. You know, in the end, I'd like one thing to happen, you know, just personally, which is I'd like Grace's death certificate changed to the truth. You know, mm. more importantly, I'd, you know, I really like, really like the attitudes of the people who have done this. You know, the specific doctor and nurse, if they would repent, oh, fantastic. I mean, that's the best justice sure. you could ever have because, you know, they're looking at spending eternity in hell. And I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. And, and that's the thing. I mean, repentance begins with first acknowledging your sin and then and then apologizing for it. And we spoke about that a little bit yesterday with this resolution from a Colorado representative in the legislature there uh, for the state to apologize for the denial of care, for locking people down, for all the mistakes. And this is something I think we need to push because that's the first step to make them admit it. They don't think they did anything wrong. They failed to learn from any of this. And again, clearly... I, I think the fact that you're going to give sedatives and and opioids and anti-anxieties um, where it's not appropriate is not limited to COVID. And I, I've seen that with a family member with cancer as well in a, in, a, in a context that clearly was not appropriate. And again, it was a more of an Ivy League hospital, and she got transferred to a more um, – lower class hospitals, you would say, but it was higher class treatment. So we're kind of seeing that divide. And this is something we need to definitely work on. Uh, we're pretty much out of time. Do you have any parting words for just from a policy end, what you hope to accomplish policy-wise, either federal or state, uh, to change in light of what you've discovered from your daughter's maltreatment? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, I don't see this as a policy issue. And the reason is, is because you cannot contract morality. So even if the policy changes, the liberals have control of the ground game. So I don't see a policy change doing any good whatsoever. It has to be a heart change. And so if we pursue a legal case, it's not going to be for a policy change. It's to just stop this. Yes. It, you know, it, and it's because it is an emergency. You know, I'm looking at I'll do five podcasts a day because of, this is urgent. People are dying. So that's why you know, our policy change right now, and I'm putting policy in quotes, is I just want everybody to know about this case so they know don't go into the hospital unless you have vetted the hospital beforehand and you Absolutely. know they have not been bought. Well, I, I, you know, thanks so much for sharing your story. Again, I wish we had a little bit more time and maybe we'll follow up on this case, but people could find out more at ouramazinggrace.net. It's all there. It, again, it will make your blood boil. Um, may God give comfort to you and your family. And, you know, we'll all be reunited in, in, in the next world, which will hopefully come soon. But we also, for this world, do need to see justice. And for my end, I am going to seek that justice at the political level, legal level. But you're right. Ultimately, it's a moral issue. It's not just even the money. There's a spirit of evil that has descended on the medical profession in particular. And I think self-separation is really the only thing we can do now. You're right. We're not going to change them until we change their hearts. But you know, we need to create our own parallel economy. And in that is a parallel medical system. 
good luck with your endeavors and i really hope you do get some legal help and you know we'll we'll certainly work with people in this audience i'm sure have a lot of good insights so uh thanks so much for sharing your story well thanks for having me daniel take care so again folks that was scott shara who tragically lost his daughter grace due to genocide that was clearly a drug overdose i mean there's no question about it so in addition to the typical treatment or lack thereof um, there's the drug overdose. And, and I think I haven't covered that enough, but that was a big part of it. Because again, your breathing is is belabored, it's troubled from the COVID. So they did things that kind of blended in. So you couldn't tell. Well, okay, well, he died of COVID. But we were always wondering, how do you have such a large percentage of healthier and even sometimes very young people come in, their sats are a little low, they have pneumonia, and they don't come out, and they're dead within a few days. You know, how does that happen? And so I think now we have a sense of how it happened. Um, you know, my brain has gone to mush. I had some other things I wanted to talk about, but we're already over an hour, and I can't think straight because I'm just so mixed with emotion. We need a Nuremberg 2.0 trial. Um, let me just close with this. You know, yesterday was Yom HaShoah, and most of the people who focus on the Jewish uh, gen genocide, the Holocaust, Remembrance Day, most of them are actually left-wing NGOs that hijack the Holocaust for their own views and often to promote ideas that not only don't ensure never again but actually ensure it will happen again and they're a part of it because they support big government they support control of over other human beings but particularly what is important is that remember the lead ship in the nazi eugenicist armada was going after disabled people or undesirable people and using the medical system and science to do so that was a big part of it. There was a Nuremberg doctor's trial that was that was like on par with the concentration camps with Auschwitz. That was a big, significant component to the Holocaust. So, yes, this is happening again. This has happened again. You put this together with what we heard today with the clot shots and the broader denial of treatment outpatient. And you're getting towards a death toll, certainly globally, that's exceeded the Holocaust, but even in America, that has exceeded a million people between the shots and the lack of treatment. And, and then there's the creation of the virus in the first place. This has happened again. What are we going to do? And if you have a candidate running for office not speaking to this, just remember that guy is worthless. Again, we'll have a little bit more on the political side tomorrow. We'll have on um, the Speaker of the Tennessee Legislature. We're going to talk about how to replicate some of the successes they had and take it even further than they've done. But folks, stay focused, stay informed, and stay safe.